0: so there was a game of hot potato for tonight's class and i was i was the guy so um, we had some scheduled situations i was not the originally scheduled teacher uh, but we are going to to teach it's a little easier for me because i'm coming right off of last week's lesson i want to apologize up front to the ladies who decided to be in here instead of being over there because every lesson has to have application and tonight's Judges 4 and Judges 5, and you know who the hero of that is? That'd be Deborah. Deborah. That's a woman. And so all of our, uh, not all of it, but we got a lot of application for the Christian woman. Uh, So you're going to feel more targeted in here because there are lots of fellows around you and there's not as many of you ladies. So you make sure, husbands, you take good notes so that you can share this with your wives. The period of the judges, um, we saw the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, Shamgar is mentioned third, uh, Ehud must have died third because of what's said in, in Judges chapter 4 and verse 1, but I thought it might be good um, here in the middle of the week as we get started for you to help me, share with me, build a list of women that you know from the period of the Judges. Deborah, all right, sorry, right. Kevin snags the the, the and fruit there. Delilah, Jael, Ruth, Naomi, Abigail, okay, so they're going to be in the monarch period later, good thought though, just in the judges period, that's good, yeah, any others from the period of the judges? Hey very good. That's on my list one of the unnamed women from the book of Judges. That's judges 953 and 54. It's the woman who has the millstone. Abimelech is not a judge. He usurps. He uh, he's wipes out all of he thinks um, of Gideon's family and he kind of takes over there and he meets a violent end. He's a very violent person. Uh, he wants somebody to kill him so the woman doesn't kill him. but every inspired account of that says she did. So, all right, so she's a hero, although we don't know anything else about her. Somebody else said another name. Good. Very good. And she's, she made my list. She's another one of those unnamed heroes. She's a woman of faith. She is a woman of uncommon common sense. Manoah's like, we're going to get struck dead. And he said, well, if he'd want to do that, he could have done that, right? That's Judges 13, 23. So there are quite a few. It, it, yes, sir. Stephen's going for extra credit. Yes, sir. Jephthah's daughter, all right, she also made my list. So let's just kind of walk through those. The first one we kind of talked about uh, in an earlier class, Axa. Uh, in fact, we talked about Axa last week. She's married to Othniel, she's Caleb's daughter. Uh, she is a person of faith, she's a person of influence. She seems to have been influenced by Caleb, but she also influenced him to expand their inheritance. She, we would deduce, maybe had a positive influence on Othniel. Behind every great man is a great woman. And he's the first deliverer of the Israelites during the period of the Judges. And you read about her in Judges 1, 11 through 15. We'll say a whole lot more about Deborah tonight, so we'll leave that for now. Uh, JL, as Miss Doris uh, pointed out, she's the hero of the incidents that occur in Judges 4 and 5. She's the one that Deborah prophesies to Barak or Barak. I'm going to probably say Barak. Barak is probably the right way to say it, but all my life I've said Barak. Uh, But she's the one that takes the glory, uh, Judges 4, 8, and 9. There's uh, Samson's Philistine wives. There's the woman of Timnath, and then there's the woman of Sorek that we better know as Delilah. All right, so it seems the woman of Timnath is as much a victim as she is a perpetrator. Uh, You hate to think about Uh, what she had to go uh, through in her society. She was probably a pawn of the Philistines trying to uh, draw out and defeat Samson. They were trying to do that throughout. Um, And she meets a terrible end. She's threatened that she and her family are going to be burned with fire. Um, And so she does wickedly. She doesn't trust in God, but we have to feel a little bit sorry for her, but not for Delilah. Delilah's probably as much a predator as she is a victim, though she probably is a little bit of, She seems to be strong-armed by the Philistines as well. Um, The Levite concubine in in Judges chapter 19, I have in my notes that she's morally ambiguous. She is a concubine, but again, I don't know how much she had a say in the arrangement with the Levite, uh, how much power women had to stand up for themselves. She may have been more of a, a sexual slave for him. Um, but she meets the most horrific end, the most violent end of anybody in Scripture. Her death is bad enough to cause a civil war in Israel. Remember the Levite? Uh, I mean, you know, things are horrible in this period of time, and so this Levite—I um, mean, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm like being graphic, but it's what the Bible says. Cuts her in 12 pieces and sends her to all the tribes of Israel as a as evidence to say this is how horrible. Um, uh, she's been we've been treated so she's in the bible we have the unnamed women of judges that we've already talked about uh the killer of abimelech and mrs Manoah, as we might want to call her naomi and ruth in the book of ruth and then hannah hannah is in the period of the judges as we'll see some of those at the uh, end i'm trying to remember if that's barrett or you don't have uh, landon who do you have You have the very end, so you'll kind of touch on some of that too. All right, Uh, and I think that's all we have there. But let's talk about Deborah just a little bit. Um, But just to say this, the women in the book of Judges are passive and active. They are uh, good and evil, uh, just like the men in the book of Judges. If I had to say that one performed a little better than the other, I'd almost have to say it was the women over the men. Uh, there were certainly some bad examples, but it seems to me that the women that are noted for us in the period of the Judges are, on the whole, much more positive than their male counterparts. Oh, by the way, a couple other women that, that after I'd already formulated my list, at the end of the song, and uh, we'll, we'll look at the song in, Deborah, in Judges chapter 5. Um, we have an inspired poem that Deborah and Barak are singing. And it talks about Sisera, who is the general of uh, of, uh, Jabin's army, uh, who Sisera's mom is sitting back at home, and she's waiting for her son to come back victorious. She wants all the spoils of war, she's expecting uh, every warrior to come with two maidens, and they'll have embroidery around their neck, so she's, she's... all four of them trying to raid the Israelites and subdue them and beat them in battle up on Mount Tabor. So she's kind of greedily waiting for the spoil of war, but she's going to come up empty. And the princes, uh, princesses of uh, the Canaanites are also mentioned in that, and uh, they're going to kind of say, you know, where where is he? He's not coming home. So they're kind of neutral. But the mom of Sisera, she's not really depicted in all that great a light. All right, so what do we know about Deborah? I mean, I know that's my task tonight is to teach about her. I just want to kind of know what you know on the front end before I start talking about her. She's a prophet. She's a prophet. All right. We'll say more about that in just a moment. What else? She's married. She's married. All right. Anybody know what her husband's name was? Lapidoth. Lapidoth. I don't know. We can say. yeah. Uh... Oh, so what do we know about Lapidoth? Yeah. He was married to Deborah. <laughs> you know, um, there have been many occasions... Uh, In various places, where somebody come up to me and they'll say, "You're uh, you're you're Kathy's husband." I love that. I love it when that's how I'm identified. If the if that's all we know about Lapidoth, considering what a great woman she is, uh, then that speaks well of him. He he married wisely, didn't he? Uh, Because she is very heroic. Anything else you know about Deborah? She's a prophet, prophetess, I guess, more specifically. Okay, she's got a tree named after her, yeah. Judges 4 and 5 tell us. Okay, she's an Ephraimite, which is the largest tribe later on when the kingdom divides and there's the northern kingdom. We talked about that in the Minor Prophets period, but now this is still one nation. All right, Um, she is the only woman who is uh, put in the position that she is in by God. She is a government official. She's the only duly appointed official of that sort by God um, as we see in Judges chapter 4 she's raised up by God uh, and no other uh, ruler of Israel who, uh, could claim this uh, she was a woman of great skill woman of great character uh, she was a prophetess as Bobby said a moment ago only two others in the Old Testament uh, wear that honor one of them is Moses's sister in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 20 and the other is Huldah in Second Kings chapter 22. Uh, so she's in a very elite company. So what does that mean that she's a prophetess? Yeah, she, God is speaking through her. It's giving messages through her. And uh, she is revealing that truth to Israel. We've already talked about Lapidoth. She was well respected by all of Israel. She was already sitting as a judge in Israel. If you'll follow the chronology in Judges 4, 5, and 6... Before the battle with the Canaanites occur. so she's so you think about other judges in Israel, sometimes they're going to kind of come out of the woodwork in order to defeat an enemy. That seems to be what happens with Shamgar. You have opposition, and so God raises him up, and he goes out and he defeats the uh, the Philistines. Um, That doesn't seem right, is it Mesopotamia? Somebody go back to chapter 3, verse 31. I think I have my enemy wrong. But Shamgar is the one who is raised up for that. Deborah's already, my point is, she's already serving as a judge. Is it? It is the Philistines. All right. Okay. Um, And so uh, chapter 4 verse 5 says that Israel would go to her for judgment. She was a woman of authority uh, as Barak, a general from Naphtali, comes to her. So he's really the one that you would expect would be the leader. He is the head of this volunteer army that she sings about in chapter 5. And um, she wants him to be the one who takes the reins of leadership and go out against the Canaanites and be at the head of everything. But she goes to him and she defer, uh, he goes to her and he defers to her. Um, but the greatest attribute that she has is her faith. Um, her faith in God and it's found throughout. So this is probably a good time for us To stop for just a moment, and let's look through Judges chapter four and Judges chapter five. All right, Judges chapter four. The interesting thing: you have the same events that are revealed to us in Judges chapter four and Judges chapter five. What's the difference? How how is Judges chapter four presented? Okay. Yeah, it is. How does it kind of read to you? Yeah, it's a historical narrative. How about chapter 5? It's a song. It's a poem. So you have the same material written out in what we say historically narrative it's just people, places and things just the facts as Joe Friday would say and then in chapter 5 you have the song in which they're going to declare look all the facts are equally valid and important and true as they are in chapter 4 but they're reinforced and in fact we get some new details in the song that we don't get in in chapter 4 but both of these combine together to give us the picture of what's happening when Deborah is leading so let's just read that really quick chapter 4 Uh, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera who lived in Heresheth Hagoyim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord for he had 900 iron chariots and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord the God of Israel has commanded, Go and march on to Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. And then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. If you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, "I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor will not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman." Then Deborah arose and went with Barak. I'm saying both ways. to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and ten thousand men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zanam, Nanam, which is near Kedesh. And then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Heresheth-Hegoyim to the river Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone down before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all of his army with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth had and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not even one was left. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here that you shall say No. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground so he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin the king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. All right, we may refer to chapter five, but there's, this, there's the account from beginning to end. And we learn, I think, as we as we go about this from the historical net perspective. Keep this in mind the context of the book of Judges. Now, Andrew taught this lesson a couple of weeks ago, and the wording may be different. But how does how does that continuous cycle go? Oppression. Okay. Sin, oppression. Okay, petition, and then deliverance. All right. So, what I want you to think is that. The reason why, anywhere you go into a commentary, maybe even in your study Bible, anytime you hear classes and sermons that focus on the whole of Judges, you hear that same thing. You're like, why can't they get new material? Because that's exactly what happens in the book of Judges. It's the way to record it. And you see these cycles repeating all the way throughout. Okay, So we're in one of those cycles. The first cycle was at the beginning of chapter 3 after that generation rose after Joshua's Generation that knew not God or the things that God did for Israel. They had to learn all the things that we just saw. They had rest in the land. Uh, and now a dramatic statement is made right here at the very beginning. And Ehud was dead. I find it very remarkable, don't you, that the only thing standing between them and faithfulness was one man. Do we ever see that happen? where it seems like the, the, the stability, the strength, the growth of a church, of a family, seems to kind of hinge on a single person. It's remarkable. Now remember the Holy Spirit's writing this to the writer of Judges, and he notes for us that Ehud was dead, and he connects it to this cycle. He does the same thing in chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, Joshua dies. All the elders in Joshua's generation died. And while it may not have been like the next day everybody fell off the spiritual cliff, it was that there was a dramatic change. I've seen it happen sometimes that uh, um, a preacher has a very strong personality and that that church is growing and, and, and at least for some of the folks who are there, perhaps their attachment or their faith is tied to that man instead of that man And as a result of that, that church may suffer dramatically when that person goes. Sometimes it's an elder. Sometimes it's an influential member of the church. In a family, you ever seen that where it seems like there's a a, a patriarch or a matriarch that really is holding everybody together? They disappear from the scene, and things change. We don't know much about Ehud except for he was good with a dagger. He was at least left-handed, and uh, he was a Benjamite, and and, uh, he won a great victory for God. No, not nearly so much is said about him spiritually as is said about Deborah, but he goes, and then they, they fall. Alright, so I think we said this last time that this apostasy or sin or however you want to, to signify that. How is that recorded for us in Judges? What, is the, what does the text say? Alright, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what's what's that that other word that's used with it? Again. All right, I think we made that point last week. That's said the first time in chapter 2. It's going to be said a total of six times in the book of Judges. The phrase that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it marks the, I guess if we're thinking in, in terms of a circle, it's the top of the circle. I really, spiritually, it's the bottom of the circle. You know, that's, it, it marks the beginning of the sin. So Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. It begins with Ehud's death, um, What was their motivation for serving God faithfully when Ehud was alive? Was it we can look at him respect for him we can look at him and we can associate him with the victory that was won it's easier for me to see and remember God's protection of me when I look at him because he was at the head of the troops but he's gone now. That tells me a few things. Fear's not enough. I I need, and the Bible does speak in terms of us having a fear of the Lord, but it's not enough to keep us faithful uh, because it certainly seems to have faded for them. Following a man is not enough to keep us faithful. Following a man, if he's following Christ, Paul says, be imitators of me, even as I am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, but that by itself is not going to be enough. What's the problem then? What's the problem for Israel? If you were to try to put it Into a succinct picture. Okay, it's not personal to them. So, how are you going to make something personal to you on a spiritual level? How do you make? So you've got to know the object of your faith. Okay. See, I think this is important. What else? Okay. Okay. So I'm going to make it personal. Faith. Involves the element or the idea of trust, Andrew. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the roots are something I've got to be working on for sure. But you also said something else I think that's vital, and that is there's a pollen, there's a cross pollination aspect to stay with the horticultural uh, illustration. We need it from one another, and so. But it starts with, am I laying down roots in my own own life? And that, and I think all that goes together. Yes, sir. I was thinking. Yeah. And they were faithful long ago. hmm He pointed out to me. The, he got uh-huh. the name, but they're okay. that that. So you have, yeah. That's right. They got to be faithful. hmm And I asked, "Daddy brought me." Yep. You know, that's okay. Sure. That That's unfaithfulness. That's right that's right and I find it interesting what you guys have done here in just the last few minutes you're talking about the individual level, you're talking about the home level you're talking about the the religious community level it's the church today, it would have been Israel in that day and the only other part you didn't get to and it's kind of woven in to that is the society level and so there's, there's not one answer to that um, but it was obvious when you look at Israel during the period of the judges that they weren't plugging into any of these things. And as a result of that, they don't have the roots. They don't have the legacy of family that they've built. They've not seen God as the object. They, they're not uh, cultivating a, a, a trust that is, is going beyond themselves. Um, right. That's right. That's right. That's Hebrews 12. That's right. And the interesting thing is, though, and we have to ask ourselves, and I think that's where everything else comes in. Um, suffering hits people differently. Some people on the other side of suffering are better, and some on the other side of it are bitter. And it's this, it may be the same trial. It's how they respond to that. So you've got to have some of these other factors present, and Jesus is a great example for that. Um, Josephus makes it very interesting I'm going to quote him a couple of times tonight he's a a historian, a Jewish historian we normally associate with the New Testament and and kind of validating facts about Jesus' life but he also wrote an entire history of the Old Testament and he's a very good extra-biblical source and he said the Israelites taking no warning by the former misfortunes to amend their manners and neither worshiping God nor submitting to the laws were brought under slavery by Jabin Every time the phrase follows the death, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, it follows the death of their spiritual leader. So I just find that incredible because they didn't do any of the things you guys were talking about. They were susceptible. They were prey. The nation continues to sin in God's eyes. They find new ways. They find new idols, new gods. What you're going to find incredible as we walk through Judges is, um, a spoiler alert, they're going to so decimate the Canaanites that the Canaanites are never a serious threat to the people of God again. And you're looking at, they had gods. You're looking at Israel and you're seeing such a rout and we'll see the nature of the victory here in just a few moments. And you're thinking, if you're an Israelite, how do you not just drill that into your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids' heads? Of course, back behind that, they had the Red Sea. They had the Ten Plagues. And can you, can you, what do you need? You need to do the very things that you guys have said. All right, after apostasy comes judgment. And uh, that, you have the text for that. Um, The the Canaanites are oppressing the Israelites. Just a few little facts to to kind of uh, help you as you walk through. Jabin is probably not a proper name. It's probably a title like Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, We go back to Joshua chapter 11, about 100 years before, and Joshua defeats the Canaanites and the five kings, uh, and among them is Jabin, so it just seems to be an official designation. This is when Hazor, which is prophesied about, is burned down to the ground. Uh, Israel is oppressed uh, by the Canaanites. That word oppressed is the same word for bondage uh, in the book of Exodus, and so they were put to slavery is the idea, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 9, and The result of this judgment, I wish we had more time to look at it. The land is filled with fear, according to chapter 5 and verse 6. They're afraid even to travel on the road. So here's here's how all of this is unfolding here. The the Canaanites are oppressing them. They're making them in bondage. They're making them in slavery. They can't go on the road. So you have these little villages. And these little small villages, they're so scared, they abandon the villages. And they go to the cities. How does that work out for them? What's happening to the cities? Okay? The, they're, they're being besieged. They're they're being attacked. And so they have no they have they're they're just afraid. They're unsafe. Um, they had no shields, they had no spears, according to chapter five and verse eight. How big's the army? Forty thousand. How does that what do you think about that? How does that strike you? Big, small? So you think about how many people came into the the land uh, of Israel at the beginning of the book of Numbers? North, I think six hundred and sixty thousand. Oh, certainly, certainly so. And you're not you're just talking about the men, fighting men. And then you have the little boys that are growing up. You have teenagers. You have some who maybe be uh, on the older end. Conservative estimate, 2 million people. Hey, you know, later on in the, di- the divided kingdom, I don't know if you remember this, I'm sure you don't, uh, but there was a time in the divided kingdom period when Judah, the southern kingdom, this is all 12 tribes, but Judah's two tribes, had 900,000 in their army. So they're down to 40,000. And it sounds like they're volunteers, they're pretty scared. Um, and this is as the result of the judgment that they're going through. Um, what about the other side? They have 900 iron chariots. Probably not completely iron, but they would have been state of the art in their day. They'd have been the tanks of their time. Uh, and you're, I don't know if you ever read about World War I. At the beginning of World War I, you had a lot of cavalry troops. And they would go out in full assaults on horses with sabers. And the Germans, and, 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 and others, I'm not trying to pick on any one nation, but they have machine guns. And they're, they're mowing them down. And they actually would send in, they would attack again. I mean, you're, it's just not a fair fight. So if you can kind of imagine that disparity on the battlefield, Jabin has this valiant uh, general by the name of Sisera, who's in charge of the occupation of Israel. Twenty years Here's what, The next thing that happens, according to chapter 4 and verse 3, is they cry out to God. What kind of a delay does there seem to be on God's side when they cry out? I, I know we're not given every detail, but we're given the highlights of it. Does God wait 20 years? It seems at least fairly immediate. So it begs the question, doesn't it? What took them so long? How did it take them two decades before they finally cried out to God? Now, I think that's a good question, but are we ever that way? You ever hit yourself against the same brick wall of sin and struggle? And you keep doing the same thing over and over again to try to resolve that? And there's a solution that's right there, but you just keep trying. What is that The old saying, insanity is what by definition? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? Um, and we do that in our lives. Yes, sir? Hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's my neighbor. Maybe it's another tribe. Maybe I'm just losing a little bit. We're not told some of those facts, but it takes them 20 years. I, I, what it made me think of is the second uh, plague in Egypt second plague of Egypt was the frogs. You remember what uh, God says to to the Pharaoh is going to happen? You're going to have frogs in your house, in your bedrooms, in your beds, in your ovens, in your uh, mixing bowls. And he says, uh, I want you to ask God to take away the frogs. Um, And and Moses says, we'll take away the frogs. Just tell us when you want us to take away the frogs and they'll be only in the Nile River. And you know what Pharaoh says in verse 10? Tomorrow. I'm thinking, why not 10 minutes ago? How could he spend another night with frogs in his bedroom? I just don't understand that. But so often I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to something I don't need to be, some sin, some bad habit in my life, and I know it's hurting my relationships. I know it's hurting my influence. And you, any, any way you want to measure loss, but just a little bit more. I just want to hang on just a little bit longer. So I don't know that we've changed all that much. We're still fighting that same battle, but it's, I don't want to miss the other side of this. When they asked, God helped them. Don't miss the grace of God in every one of these situations. God, when we would think it makes no sense to do so, pulls them out of the ditch each and every time. And I'm thankful for that, that, he's, that he is that way. So there's the deliverance that comes in chapter 4, verse 2 through 24. and chapter 5, verse 12 through 30, you have a restating of what we read a moment ago. Deborah's from Ephraim. She's well-respected. She's already judging Israel. They travel to her for judgment on difficult matters. She asks Barak, a general from Naphtali, and commands 10,000 troops to go up on Mount Tabor. Uh, And she says, you're going to have victory, chapter 4, verse 8. He says, I'll go if you go. If not, I won't go. And she says, okay, I'm, I'm going, but the victory won't be yours. It'll be a woman's. Now, apparently I don't, this, there's not, it's not like the, the writer is speaking disparagingly Anyway, any way. God has a bigger picture than the people that day did. Apparently it was a, a lessening of honor. If it was, it, that's why Abimelech wants somebody to, to, to kill him because he doesn't want the, the millstone from that woman to be the cause of his demise. Um, but to Barak's credit you know what Barak could have said because remember this is not a great period of time spiritually he could have said well <laughs> if that's the case never mind but he goes, he musters the troops and he valiantly goes into battle um, it, it is interesting that six tribes if you read in chapter 4 gather to fight for Israel Sisera musters his troops to face them All right, so they're facing off you've got Barak and his ten thousand, and you've got what must have been a, an army of thousands on the other side. And what happens? I mean, we get the blow by blow, don't we? Now it depends on your version. My, I, I looked at one particular version that says that God, the Lord, threw them into a panic. Do you? What are you any, is that about, about verse fifteen or sixteen? Anybody have a different rendering? Maybe one of maybe say confusion. Lord. Routed Sisera. What what happens with the Canaanites? What does it say about them? So something happens. We're not really told, right, as far as the specifics of that. We just know that every one of the Canaanites are going to die. Here's our other Josephus reference here. This is interesting to me. Um, And he's gathering a lot of oral history from the Jews. Um, There would be a lot of uh, foundation of truth in this. Um, He says, so the battle began. There came from heaven a great storm with a vast quantity of rain and hail and the wind blew the rain in the face of the Canaanites and so darkened the eyes that the arrows and slings of the Canaanites were of no advantage to them nor would the coldness of the air permit the soldiers to use their swords. While the storm did not so much inconvenience the Israelites because it came at their backs. Some of the Canaanites fell by the Israelites some fell by their own horses which were put into disorder and not a few were killed by their own chariots." But whatever the, all the facts are, God, he won the victory. Um, they go and they do. These folks have been subduing them for 20 years. Every single one of them dies, except for one guy, the general. What a hero he is. What does he do? He gets off his chariot and he runs and hides. But there's nowhere to hide from God. Uh, he goes, he chooses the wrong tent. Now, Heber, the key is pretty smart fella. He is uh, related to Israel through Moses in marriage, Numbers 10, 29. But he's also at peace with Hazor. So they're not fooling with him. They think he's a friend. And Jael must have been a woman of pretty good faith. She, she does. She takes care of business. Um, she goes the second mile so that she can get him good and sleepy. And, uh, and, and she gives him milk, of course. And then that does the trick. And then things are, that's all over for him but the crying. And that's the end. And we get the rest in chapter 5 and verse 31. There's rest for 40 years, and the Canaanites are done as a nation as far as their fighting of Israel. Now, what I want to do is to just kind of walk you through the the practical perspective. Um, Just some principles to be learned. Uh, The godly woman, and Deborah certainly is, must use her tongue properly. I want you to notice what Scripture says about her words. Look at chapter 4 and verse 5. She spoke such wise words that people traveled great distances to come and to uh, get her wisdom and her judgment. Chapter 4 and verse 6, she speaks the commands of God. Chapter 4, verse 14, she spake cheerful, positive words when others were facing innumerable odds. Uh, I wish I had time to unpack all of that, but God wants women today. He wants men too, but we're using Deborah as an example for the godly woman. To use her speech in the same way. To be able to use her tongue. Because she can use her tongue positively or she can use it negatively. If you do the mental exercise, obviously never do this out loud. Can you think of some women who are known for backbiting and gossiping and hypercriticism? And you would associate those things with them? But also would you not associate some women with gentleness and kindness, encouraging words? The godly woman uses her tongue properly. And I think we see that from Deborah. She also must be a good influence. Um, And if you look at chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, she has great respect in all Israel. And her influence strengthened others. Chapter 4, verse 24. She caused their hands to be stronger when they were oppressed and were heavy. And so God's woman must ask, does my life deserve the respect of others by my conduct? Does my life change things for better in the home, in the church, in society? Um, Deborah sings a song of faith to God. Look at chapter 5. It's incredible. I wish we had more time to look at that. God's woman must have the right attitude. Chapter 4 and verse 9, Deborah had unswa- uh, unwavering courage and faith in God. She encouraged others to become active. Chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 9, um, she uh, adopts the right attitude in every form where she had an opportunity. That's good for us to keep in mind when it comes to where we speak, virtually or in person, to be one who has the right attitude. Um, Don't use social media as a means to complain about every small thing that's going on in your life, but encourage others through that. She must be active. Um, Notice this just very quickly. She was an encourager of of the brethren. Who'd she encourage? She encouraged Barak, for one thing. She encouraged the entire army because she was with Barak at the head of that with those 10,000 that were on Mount Tabor. Um, She was involved in the work with the brethren. She was right with the troops on Mount Tabor. And she performed her God-given duty. She was a leader by example to the brethren. Um, And I'd like to say more about that, but I want to catch this really quickly. I think there's three good lessons we can learn from Deborah in uh, Judges chapter 4 and 5. Number one, the cause of God needs women. Do you realize that there are few restrictions on women's leadership? We, you know, whenever we talk about the role of women in the church, we talk about those areas where she cannot serve. We understand 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. She cannot teach or have authority over the man. She cannot serve in spiritual leadership positions. Do you realize how narrow a sliver that is in all that's to be done in the kingdom of God? Years ago, I was asked to write in a book project. It was so long ago that I was one of the young preachers in that project. And it was my chapter. is the book called Redeeming the Time. My, my chapter was on the, the untold good that women can do. And in that, I listed out all the activities that were open for women to do in various ways in the Lord's Church. And it is, as it is for men, so it is for women, we're not doing nearly all we can be that's available to us in the kingdom of God. So there's The cause of God always will need women, especially women who are developing like Deborah. Number two, we learn from this story that when things seem hopeless, we see God's power most clearly. They were powerless. They had none of the advantages, and God wins the victory for them. In chapter five and verse 20 in the song, it says that the stars fought from heaven. The stars in their orbits fought against Sisera. That's a kind of a euphemism for God was at work. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 is a passage we should never forget. But thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Jesus. Every victory we win, and the bigger the more audacious the dreams that we dream, the more we'll see God at work in them. And then finally, we need to, be, uh, to offer willing service to God. Now you might think about Barak. And yeah, Barak wasn't as willing as he needed to be. But in the song, in chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, in verse 23, you have three tribes. You have Dan, you have Asher, who stayed at home. And God, and then there's, there's this, in verse 23, there's this kind of ambiguous place. We don't know exactly where it is in Israel. But they're going to be judged because they did not join in the battle. Our motto should be Isaiah's. When God, he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Barak, his credit, did that. Deborah, she was already ready to go. And she might have said, If you're waiting on me, you're going backwards. But that's all I got. We are uh, looking next week at Gideon and his service as the next judge of Israel. Thank you for your attention.